and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Mutations. Also known as The Freak Maker. <laughs> what is that? That's Is that the American re-release? No, it just says that The Mutations, like on IMDb, it does The Mutations doesn't even pull up. It's The Freak Maker. And then on the Wikipedia page, it said it was also released under the name The Mutations. It's so. like how uh, the first Harry Potter movie is... Uh, all over the world, it's Harry Potter and the. Uh, oh fuck! See, this would have been great if I actually remembered the Harry Potter titles. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm sorry, I can't help you out with this one. I think it's like all over the world. It's like Harry Potter and the and the Philosophy Stone, and then they dumbed it down for for America, and it was like Harry Potter and like <laughs> the, the Magical Stone or something. The Big Mac. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Harry Potter and the Big Mac. Well, whatever the case. Freak maker or mutations, it means a triumphant return of Donald Pleasance to the contrarians. Uh, always welcome. Uh, you know, as has been stated, every time he's come up, I'm never gonna see him as anything but Dr. Samuel Loomis, but it's always uh, welcome, especially for his performance here. So, welcome to the contrarians. Welcome, Dr. Pleasance. Would you say this is more intense? or less intense than uh, his performance in Wake and Fright. Oh, I mean, there, it's hard to compare anything to that, but <laughs> this this isn't without its psychotic charm. Uh, Alex, this is a, this is the beginning of the, the patron takeover, patron mm-hmm. invasion of the main feed. This is a, Orga- yeah, this is something you organized, and you've rounded up our patrons and gotten some picks, and this is, uh, yeah, the, the starting point. And, you know, which is kind of fitting because, you know, we're going to be in the lab, Frankenstein and all this shit together. But for the mutations, a release in the U.S. on September 25th of 1974, uh, inspired heavily by Todd Browning's film Freaks from 1932. Jack Cardiff uh, directed, written by Edward Mann and Robert D. Weinbach. This movie is one that I can safely say that you had never heard of, at least. Is that correct? It's quite the assumption, Alex, but it is correct. Well, I mean, if this is if anyone's listening for the first time, I'm the I, I can't even say resident horror fan because I don't I don't front myself as an expert in the field, but definitely of the two, I'm the fan and particularly a fan of '70s horror. So when this got plopped onto our desk, I was very excited about it. But who who did said plopping? Who threw this our way for uh, this episode? 
<laughs> this was plopped by uh, patron Dale Bridges. Uh, he who wrote the book The Mean Reds that we that we plugged a while ago. Um, it is it is funny because in the book the the main character uh, is uh, is a film student and uh, there's there's several passages in the book that talk about the kinds of movies that he likes to watch that inspire his filmmaking and uh, and that of his friends and I I told Dale when he threw this our way I was like this sounds like the kind of movie that that your main character would watch so <laughs> I'm excited that that was really the only thing that I had in mind when I was. When I was watching it, that and you know, of course, it was it's Doctor Loomis. But Dale Bridges, we'll we'll hear what he thinks about this movie in the second half of the show in real talk. But uh, he he sent us an email to read, so we'll find out then if he likes it or not. But this is the opening salvo, and uh, I don't know, Alex. I mean, you're right. The only mutations I was familiar with before now were uh, the ones in the X Men. That's that's my thing. You were familiar with the the new mutants, not necessarily the old mutants. I tried really hard uh, as I was writing my notes to, to try to make like a, a Loomis as Charles Xavier joke, but that, that, it just didn't happen. This was worth, too divorced from the Marvel Universe for me to make that happen. But yes, as I was watching it, I also thought this is this is a movie that Alex, if he wasn't aware of it, like it, it, this probably was like a big warm embrace for you. It's just like a lot of practical effects and weird shit yeah dude and 70s horror that's it's hard to go wrong because even if it's bad it's still going to be so fucking weird that you're like all right why not and for the most part in the 70s the directors had the wherewithal to keep it between 80 and 90 minutes sometimes even like 70 if you find if you get really lucky but yeah this was released in 1974 a time frame we're pretty close to here um, you know, 74 to 78, you know, having done things like Jaws, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Grease in the past. So this is an era of time that we're pretty familiar with. A bunch of horror movies and Grease. Oh, yeah, I guess Jaws is considered a, a horror movie. <laughs> Nowadays, it would be like an action thriller. But in those days, that's what it was known for. People were scared to death of it. Star Wars was 77. Okay, so yeah, that was in the same time frame. A lot going on. The original Fly, when was when was that released? Uh, the original Fly, wasn't that 1958? Was it? Okay. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've covered both the original Fly from 1958 and also the Jeff Goldblum remake uh, from 1986. You can go back and check out those episodes if you're curious on how we feel about it. But let's get to the topic du jour. We don't want to keep our patrons, and in this case, our specific patron, Dale, waiting any longer. You may think you are normal, but you are all the product of mutations. Your ancestors, our ancestors, were freaks. Uh, but before we jump into the mutations, we do want to thank any and all first-time listeners and explain what it is we do here on The Contrarians. Uh, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as and accompanied by that wonderful IP, that trademarked logo of Certified Fresh, and make a case for maybe why that movie not necessarily doesn't deserve that high score, but maybe just how that high score doesn't tell the whole story of the movie and uh, goes out of its way to blanket some of the issues, be it storytelling, acting, directing, bad effects, you know, poor score, that type of thing. Conversely, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, 
One of those nasty green splotches known as rotten. Usually shoot for about 30% and below. And as you could guess, we'll make a, a case for the positive merit behind that film. Build it up. Talk about bold storytelling, underrated acting, underrated, you know, twists and turns, great soundtrack score, whatever we can find to say, hey, you know, maybe this 25% score doesn't really mean what you think it means. We do this in an attempt to, number one, show the shit is subjective. If you set your mind to it, you can be as truly over the moon or as cynical about something as as you want to be. And uh, also that those scores on Rotten Tomatoes uh, don't always tell the whole story. And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, it's used as a powerful metric these days, and the people that use that metric don't do any work to explain, you know, what it means. And so Julio and I kill some time, kill a few hours every week doing that work for them. So we will take those <laughs> those checks, those uh, endorsement deals and royalty checks anytime that you want to. Uh, Julio, a little bit different today as The Mutations does not have a score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, yeah, this is a this is one of those. I mean, we've we've done a couple of these before. Usually, uh, they're patron requests or, or requests from friends of the show. Like I, I think when we did the Doctor Who movie, uh, that was that was a request from uh, Hans, the the guy that did our logo. And uh, you know, this is one of those. Uh, I'm gonna call them Ghost Tomatoes. I don't know if if you've looked it up, Alex, on the Rotten Tomatoes website. So this is one of those where there's not enough reviews for them to give you. Uh, you know, either a rotten or a fresh. So instead, what they give you is this appropriately, I guess, a black and white ghostly tomato. It looks like the tomato passed away, and this is like the in memoriam black and white photo of it. <laughs> yes, but well, the next to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, next. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just excited to cut you off because there's typically these audience scores, and I've never paid too much attention to them. I didn't realize there was a fresh and a rotten audience score. <laughs> Yes. Icon. I guess I would call it a a sad popcorn tub because <laughs> it's been just dumped on the floor. There's still popcorn there. It's just but they're still color coded. Like the the good audience score is a red bucket, and then the negative audience score is a green bucket. Which, being an alum of the University of North Texas, I take umbrage with the negative use of green. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like isn't the one that's like happy? The popcorn's like piled high and like standing upright. Isn't that <laughs> glistening with butter? <laughs> it's been layered. And yes. <laughs> yeah, this one's like half empty and knocked over. Like we would see in oh so many children's movies back in the day. It, it just uh, gives you the impression that the person that bought that popcorn stopped caring, left the movie, kicked the bucket and to the they side. Kicked it over on their way out. Not even out of defiance, just out of pure apathy. They just kicked yep. it over. Yeah, this is, in this case, this little overturned bucket of popcorn uh, symbolizes a 37% audience score out of more than 500 ratings. So most of, 37% out of those 500 ratings were like, nope, fuck the mutations, we don't care. So that still kind of hurts. Yeah, clearly an increased effort from the audience versus the the critics on this one. They they wanted to make sure they know they did not care for this movie. Uh, so we will use that audience score as kind of our, you know, the... We'll write it on a post-it and stick it up on the blackboard while we work through this. So being 37%, Julio, we will be, in the first portion of this, we'll be going to bat for the mutations and standing up for Dr. Sam Loomis and his crimes against humanity in this film. Uh, <laughs> if listeners want to know how we really feel about the freak maker, the mutations, or whatever the movie of the day is, they just have to tune in to part two, the second half of the episode. 
That's correct. The second half of every episode, aptly titled Real Talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel. We forget about the tomato meter, the audience score, what have you. We just tell you how we experience the movie uh, as we've already set up. Like, Alex, this is the kind of thing that should be in his wheelhouse. So does that mean that he liked it, though? We'll, we'll find out then. And you'll also find out if if I was able to look past my usual problems with the, the horror genre and, and old movies and and. Maybe was I was I able to appreciate these old mutants? And then, of course, that's where we find out, as I said, how Dale feels. Is he trolling us? Is he just throw a movie that he doesn't like out here just to see if we could actually be positive about it, or is he really a fan of this? Based on the fact that he has characters in his novel really enjoy these type of movies, I mean, I think that kind of hints at how he feels, but uh, we could be wrong. We'll find out then. Uh, before that, like Alex said, we're going to be positive because it's time for Contrarian's Corner. So as I mentioned previously, The Mutations, released September 25th, 1974. I uh, wasn't able to find anything in the way of a box office or a budget. I mean, movies, especially horror movies back in those days, it was it's like, all right, here's two cartons of cigarettes, make a movie, that type of thing. <laughs> but definitely seems to have a legacy in, in its own right. I mean, a lot of movies with Donald Pleasance attached do, and uh, any movie like this from that just insane, you know, Gatlin gun of 70s horror. You'll be able to find someone in the world that loves it. Uh, but as we mentioned, the overwhelming majority did not. So Julio, uh, where are you sourcing your quotes from and what what are what are what are they saying? What's their beef? You would think that I would go to the Rotten Tomatoes website for the quotes like we usually do. You know, like I said, 500 reviews. Uh, So we could pull quotes from there. But honestly, we've kind of developed this practice of falling on Letterboxd whenever Rotten Tomatoes doesn't have anything that looks interesting to read on the show. So I went to Letterboxd because also Letterboxd makes it really easy to... um, now, this sounds like an ad for Letterboxd, but <laughs> makes it really easy to sort reviews by star rating. So I could just select a range to where I only got uh, two star and one star reviews for the mutations. So I could read the negative quotes for this part. If they want to jump on, we'll we'll take money from them. We'll, we'll, we, we will suck the Letterboxd teat every week if we need to, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, nobody said that we had principles. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, if you want to hear positive quotes, uh, those come in real talk. I have four quotes from Letterboxd, starting with Dell, who gave this movie two stars and says, It's weird that Jack Cardiff, a cinematographer of such renowned and genius, creator of some of the most beautiful images in cinema, should direct something so sleazy and worthless, and weirder still that it looks so bland. Hardly a passion project, I'm sure. Oh, worthless, damn. Sleazy. Uh, isn't that part of the appeal of a 70s movie? <laughs> we could get away with, with a lot more sleaze than, than we do these days. Uh, I think that would be categorically correct, yes. I wasn't even alive in the 70s, but I still somehow I miss the, the times where we could just have casual nudity and it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> just... And there is casual nudity with a capital C in this movie, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I assume that a review was also kind of bummed because it was um, the last film that Jack Cardiff would direct. Yeah, there were a couple of, uh, of reviews that mentioned that. and uh, But I was like, I'm not familiar with Cardiff, with Mr. Cardiff at all. Uh, are you? I'm going through his filmography right now, and there's a few movies on here I've heard of, but I can't say to a certainty that I've ever seen them. More to come as I look through these. 
well, while you do that, next, Tea Culture Vulture gives it two stars and says, you know a movie is going to be quality when the first 10 minutes are stock footage of nature scenes. <laughs> I know they're being sarcastic, but uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> that is an awesome opening. It really uh, grabs your attention. In the years after this film was released, there would be a channel created that's literally just that 24 hours a day. <laughs> so joke's on you, man. You just watch. You're glued to the screen waiting for Donald Pleasance to pop in. Watch the Discovery Channel for four days and you just, you know, what what would you be on? Meth or something? You should snort some meth and think you're going to watch the mutations and then you just watch fucking Nature Channel for four days. Uh, Chris gives it one star and says, Freaks plus Little Shop of Horrors plus The Island of Dr. Moreau equals this complete mess. I I haven't seen The Island of Dr. Moreau all the way through, and I've only seen the, the Brando remake. I see where this guy's coming from, having seen Little Shop of Horrors and being familiar with Freaks. I don't think it adds up to a complete mess, though. It adds up to, you know, it's like when you combine awesome things, a glorious mess, not a complete mess. The person who invented the Reese's peanut butter cup would argue that combining two great things worked out pretty well in their favor. Chocolate plus peanut butter plus the island of Dr. Moore. Sign me up. <laughs> yes. And we're going to close with Brent, who gives it two stars and says, I fell asleep during the last 10 minutes and I don't really feel I missed anything. Brent, you fell asleep during the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. You missed the climax in all, like, every sense. <laughs> Where it got, it all got tied together. I feel like if you miss, honestly, if you miss a big chunk of a movie, but especially if you miss the ending, you really have no business giving it a, a score. I would concur with that because as we've discussed on here at length, uh, endings can sometimes make or break an entire movie. Mm -hmm. And and also there's movies that sucks and have a great ending. <laughs> yes. I think that you can still log it, you know, but just just do the honorable thing and refrain from actually giving a score. Yes. Like we did with um, Fabulous Forensics. What's the movie we did? <laughs> Neil Breen. Fateful Findings. Fateful Findings. All right. Yeah. And we watched the whole thing. We did, but we did the honorable thing of just not giving it a score because it wasn't for us. It was w way beyond our scope. <laughs> it was. Not beyond our scope, though. The mutations. We don't know yet how these mutations happen. But we do know that mutations can be induced. So that instead of endless accidental changes, we may be able to create the mutations of our choice. Um, whose story is this? Is this a story of Professor Nolter? No, he's the bad guy. I'm going to say this is the story of the, <laughs> the American foreign exchange student that much like that last review I read uh completely misses the climax no uh, who, who's no you, it's it's i was gonna say igor uh lynch's brad story ha yeah brad harris uh, brian is the exchange student i think as with a lot of horror movies specifically 70s horror movies um it's light on plot so it's not really that much to recount but there is like really weird aspects to it so the beginning of this is julio referenced in one of the reviews is basically stock footage of nature and plants and cells and organisms and you know what what can happen through mutation and that type of shit. We learned this is uh, a lecture from the man, the doc, 
Dr. Sam Loomis, Donald Pleasance, as Professor Nolter and explaining, you know, through mutation, we're going to be able to do all this shit. There's going to be clones. We're going to be able to recreate dinosaurs. Uh, I mean, some stuff that if you're watching in 1974, you're probably like, yeah, why not? And then, you know, <laughs> and then you in 19, cut to 1993 and Spielberg is like, here you go. I uh, did yeah. it. <laughs> the doc would have still been alive at that point. So, you know, he's old Halloween six Donald Pleasance in the theater. <gasps> I told you. <laughs> Uh, but this, I mean, it just picks up right away as, as is needed for me to truly enjoy a movie. Uh, Olga Anthony, who plays Bridget, uh, a very buxom, attractive young gal, a redhead, is stalked in the park with um, by what appears to be the Elephant Man. Did you get like immediate vibes from that? Yes. My first thought, because I knew I was going to be discussing this with you, it was like, oh. That's not CGI. That's just some dude with uh, uh, prosthetic makeup uh, on his face. Alex is going to be so happy. And I get it. <laughs> yes, but it kind of sticks out, and we'll get to why here in a moment. Um, oh, actually, this is the perfect time for me to uh, correct myself from something I said, I think, last episode. Because that guy's Tom Baker. Tom Baker plays the, the I guess, the elephant man here. Uh, and... Uh, I said, hey, Tom Baker from when we did the Doctor Who movie. Okay, I was only half right. Tom Baker is one of the many, many Doctor Whos that have, you know, graced the the planet with their presence, but mm-hmm. he was not in the movie we watched. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a, uh, fuck, Sylvester something. He was not. So um, I'm sorry. I'm sure all Doctor Who fans were just cussing me out while I was... <laughs> I was innocently trying to drum up the interest, you know, trying to get my my co-host excited about this movie. I, I really, all I needed to say was Donald Pleasance. But anyway, Tom Baker, he plays a, the, the big, strong, uh, self-proclaimed ugly man here. No, I guess they gave him that title. He, he didn't give it to himself. Yes. Lynch is his given name. Um, not unlike Patrick Wilson and John Hamm in the A-Team movie. But, you know, that's a different story for a different day or a past day, I should say. We already covered that. Clear face mutation, much like The Elephant Man. This movie, I mean, to its benefit, it it goes grocery shopping. You know, Edward Mann and Robert D. Weinbach, when they wrote this, and of course, Cardiff, when he put it to film, they went grocery shopping. They went and they're like, all right, going to take a little bit of freaks here, going to take a little bit of the fly here, going to take the elephant man here, that type of thing. And, you know, it works because it's kind of like, you know, the the Justice League or some shit of <laughs> uh, body horror or whatever the fuck they call it today because they can't just say horror because everything has to be special. A healthy dose of boobs and you know, just add flavor. <laughs> As as was the style at the time. I was curious about Olga Anthony. She looked like kind of like a starlet of what would have been, you know, in uh, for horror movies at that point in time. Kind of reminded me of like an Ingrid Pitt, like good big hair. And then obviously kind of, you know, I, that's what, not saying it's right, but that's the, they cast on things like uh, measurements and whatnot back in the day. So <laughs> when she showed up in this, I was immediately like, well, she's not going to last long and long. She does not last. Look, it's not even exclusive to the seventies. I mean, we still, I think by and large cast, not we <laughs> society, <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> cast society. Uh, yeah. Based on looks. Uh, it's just that maybe the looks have changed a little bit as far as what, uh, you know, what they go for, but, but it's still, I mean, are you telling me that Brad Pitt gets roles because uh, he has talent or because he looks like Brad Pitt? 
Cast Brad Pitt as the elephant, man. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I can't do a Brad Pitt impression, but, you know, just think of him with, like, fucking uh, the slicked back hair, kind of like the length of Moneyball, and him just being like, I'm a human being. Like, you know, looking all hot and shit. <laughs> Eating a Twinkie. Yes, just aggressively. Holy shit. It was apropos that I name-dropped Ingrid Pitt, one, to curry up favor with horror fans, but two... Uh, Vampire Lovers, which is a movie I'm a big fan of, this Olga Anthony character was in it. So there you go. Everything is connected. I'm not proud, Julio, that I've seen so many of these that my brain's able to just put shit like that together, like effortlessly. It's not good. She's also <laughs> in Scars of Dracula starring Christopher Lee. I That one I haven't heard of. I, I remember you bringing up Vampire Lovers before. Well, you know, Christopher Lee was Dracula for a while. I know him from The Lord of the Rings. Brother. <laughs> I know he used to be Dracula. Okay. I you know you what? were kidding. I was about to tell everyone <laughs> listening to get on Twitter and bully you for that. <laughs> I know him, Bela Lugosi, and then Karloff was Frankenstein, right? Yeah, and um, <laughs> it should have been like, I know Bela Lugosi. I know Christopher Lee, and I know Tom Cruise or something like that. Gary Oldman. Yes, he, but he became Mecca Dracula in that, man. <laughs> All right, so Lynch here, our elephant man, and he's accompanied by... Burns? Burns, yes, an, an actor by the name of uh, Michael Dunn, who it appears as though there's like a, a chain of command here. Burns and Lynch kind of do stuff together, but Lynch reports back to... Uh, Loomis, Professor Nolter, and we get a legitimate peek into the mind of Nolter early on when we see like his home and his lab and petting this rabbit. I was like, oh, that's a pretty rabbit. And then he feeds it to this plant because, you know, the opening is explaining um, he really focuses and fixates on the Venus flytrap and explains how that works. And what he's doing here is creating half plant, half living being hybrids. And he needs subjects to conduct on because he's done it with like rats and shit. And he's obviously made this big plant that's eating rabbits, but he's continuously trying to, you know, manufacture these mutations, but he needs subjects, test subjects. So in this case, poor Bridget, Olga Anthony is kidnapped by Lynch and taken to be experimented upon. And we find out Julio, what's the reason that Lynch is agreeing to do all this? Much like Benjamin Grimm in The Fantastic Four, he's he's hoping to be cured, to be fixed. We have to wait. What about me? How long do I have to wait? I have told you when I've I been... can't wait! Maybe there's no way to cure me. I found it uh, very powerful that this man is so discontent with the way he looks that he doesn't care that the, the way that Loomis will probably help him is by turning him into a plant man. But he's like, I don't care. That's a step up from being an elephant man. It's better than this shit, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. there's nothing in Loomis's experiments that indicates that he'd be able to make him look like the average dude in 1974. <laughs> it's the, the clean slate in The Dark Knight Rises of like, <laughs> I wish there was a scene of Loomis being like, he actually bought into that? it's a bunch of bullshit there's nothing i can do there's a point in the movie where he's like come here look look at the you know my latest experiment this shows that i can cure you and and lynch looks through the microscope like he can tell what that means (laughs) he hasn't it could be like you know a fruit loop under there and he's looking at it and he's like ah yes 
that's why I'm, like I want to believe Loomis is just like a bigger asshole and more vindictive towards everybody. He's just like, you know, making this guy look like an idiot. But yeah, he's like, look at this, and the guy's like, oh yes, I believe it. So Alex, I was I was gonna say that that uh, this movie had me at Donald Pleasance as a math scientist, but also much like you, I think this movie just had me at Donald Pleasance. It's just that once I saw him put that uh, lab coat on, the white lab coat on, which is cra- crazy. And this is is this exclusive to England or what? Because this this is taking place in England, uh, mm-hmm. he puts it on like like he's putting on one of those robes that they give you at the hospital. You know what I mean? Like. Sticking the your arms and the sleeves through the front, and then he ties the back. That's not standard issue <laughs> lab coat. It gives the feel of like a, a butcher in a slaughterhouse, though, because you know that's what they do. So they have the the front towel. Chefs do that same thing too. It, it makes it way creepier than it would be. But they could have gone for like the one comedic shot of Lynch comes in or something, and he's got his lab coat on, and then he turns around to go to the counter, and he's completely <laughs> naked under it. <laughs> Or just, or just Loomis's him- <laughs> ass in the wind. <laughs> or just having through the entire scene for five minutes, he's trying to tie the, the two strings together in the back. And then he, oh, fuck it. And he throws it at the plant <laughs> and eats it. Uh, one of my favorite shots in the movie is, what's the name of this one? The, the first victim? Bridget. Bridget, yeah. When Bridget starts coming out of the, the coma that she's been in for like a day, I think. And... Uh, her eyes open, and the first thing she sees is Loomis and uh, Lynch looking down at her. It's just the shot is from her point of view, and it's just the heads of Loomis and Lynch there. Uh, that should have been the movie's poster. It's, Dude, uh, were they trying to make uh, Sam a heartthrob in this? Because they fig like they because there's several shots of just lingering and like the full baby penetrating eye contact. Yeah, <laughs> like Sinatra. Who you got? Uh, <laughs> The doc on the case here, and it was very hypnotizing. Did you feel that there was, uh, I wouldn't say sexual tension, but uh, sexual playfulness uh, in his classroom whenever he was teaching? You know how like in the Indiana Jones movies when they show Harrison Ford lecturing before he goes on an adventure and all the students are just looking at him like he's a dreamboat because he is. Um, did you feel that this was the British version of that of that sequence when whenever Loomis is just going on about plants and and clones and the future of humanity, and then there's the all the girls in the class are just really paying attention and the guys are are feeling threatened so they're making jokes and not taking him seriously. <laughs> that and he also has the moment where he's walking behind them before class and kind of playfully interjects into their conversation of. Perhaps it's one of the mutants we discussed in class or something like that. You know, he's got his overcoat on and his hands in his pockets, just looking cool in a Sam Loomis type of way. The girls sigh after him. (laughs) (laughs) My note here says massive cancer, Ray, because, you know, he shows off one of his experiments to his class in the lecture hall. And it's actually very useful. Like, it's a very useful invention. Undecomposes shit. I guess well, composes. first it decomposes it, so it can be used for evil or for for good. He he's created <laughs> a super villain weapon. <laughs> but yeah, it shows when the scene begins. It shows this orange like decaying, and then it you know there's a smash cut to just the the lecture hall, and this ray is like it's legitimately like ten feet long and like seven <laughs> feet off the ground. It looks like the ray that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger tries to use to freeze Gotham at the end of Batman and Robin. <laughs> Uh, this is probably the most British scene in the movie because this dude just demonstrated 
this this artifact of massive power that can change the way that the world <laughs> lives because uh, you know he can basically reverse aging either accelerate or reverse aging and his class just kind of shrugs it off and like oh that's cool <laughs> what's your next trick <laughs> what will you do for an encore dr loomis that's also a peak college student of like yeah all right well who's gonna use that <laughs> or it's one of those man like those lecture classes i took at 8 a.m dude could have come out and been like uh here i have this machine that duplicates $100 bills and can never be detected. And I'm going to give it to you if you can tell me what two plus two is. And be like, I don't <laughs> fucking care, man. Uh, you know, those guys, 10 years later, once they finally come out of the college haze, they're going to find themselves in the middle of the night thinking, did that guy really make an orange rot and then bring it back? Did that really happen? I mean, that's how everyone's college memories are. There's always, you know, one or two dozen things that you just have stuck in your mind. And once in a while, I'll be like, did that happen? In this case, did that orange just go to shit in front of me and he brought it back to life? <laughs> and then he made a lizard woman? <laughs> that was that was for the final. They just didn't get to the end of the semester. I was disappointed. I mean, I like this movie, but I was disappointed that the magic aging Ray didn't play a role in the in the climax of the movie. I really thought that it was going to be turned either on Lynch or Loomis or somebody. And we were going to see them just rot, you know, at the speed of light. Uh, but that, that didn't happen. And I, was, I was a little bummed, but I guess in a way that was uh, Jack Cardiff playing against expectations. It would have been awesome if like Loomis used the reverse ray on himself and, and in the next scene he had like long flowing hair. <laughs> He looked like Paul Rudd. The eyes were exactly the same, though, because old DP's got some some baby blues. So as was mentioned already several times, clear influence from the 1932 film Freaks on display throughout this. And a big part of this is uh, the college students. We have Brian, the U.S. exchange student, Hetty, uh, who looks an awful lot like... Um, Jan Levison Gould from The Office. The first shot of her, I did like a double take because obviously I knew it wasn't. Um, is her name? Is it Melody Harding? Harding. We've brought her up before, like recently, because we had to look it up. <laughs> Melora. <laughs> Melora Harding? Melora, Melora Harding. The Muzak version is Melody Harding. <laughs> Melora Harding and Julie Ige get on Ancestry.com. See, see where it matches up. I'm sure it's somewhere <laughs> down there. Brian, Hetty, Lauren, and Tony, the array of college students that we're dealing with here, they go to the carnival that's in town, and part of the carnival is the freak show. And this being 1974, uh, this was still in full effect. Uh, my mom actually says she remembers being a little girl and going to like the state fair and there being a freak show there. She looks back on it as like, you know, one of the dark parts of our country's history. She's when she talks <laughs> about it, she's like, I can't believe they used to do that. And you know I can't it, believe I paid 15 cents. <laughs> two bits of gander is what I paid for it. <laughs> and in this, it much like freaks, despite being made 42 years after the fact, it utilizes actual circus performers. 
and the opening credits, I don't know if you caught, like gives a thanks to whoever their promoter was and then lists them all like with their name and their gimmick name. Did you catch oh, that? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't. I was too distracted by the, the plants growing before my eyes. It's such a carny thing because it's thanks to Big Top Joe for his band of freaks and then it lists them individually and has their uh, character names, I guess, as it thanks were. Thanks to Mr. To McMahon. <laughs> God. <laughs> it's true. If Vince lo- loaned a bunch of wrestlers to a movie, it would say the same thing. Thanks to Vince McMahon for his band of circus freaks. <laughs> <laughs> and the feature attraction of our show, all the way from the roof of the world, from the snow-capped Himalayas, the lizard woman of Tibet. I guess, in my humble opinion, maybe maybe you're too jaded to be as, as taken by this sequence as I was. But to me, this is the most memorable part of the, of the movie the, the the centerpiece oh yeah you know it's like i don't know 10 minutes or so of just the show which is just they go in and then burns introduces his x-men you know he's just like this is the the pretzel man and this is the the bearded woman and this is the the dude that can can get uh needles through his body without feeling pain and uh, and so on and i mean even i could tell that that there was no trickery or at least there was no cgi you know it all looked pretty convincing, pretty uh, very very practical, and uh, I don't know how this played in '74. That was the moment where I suddenly I had to like pump the brakes and take the movie seriously. I mean, I was having a good time, but this is where I, I just had to reckon with what I was watching. And that was like from the the twenty twenty three sensibility. It was kind of appalling, and I'm glad you brought up what your mom says about this <laughs> because. Unlike, you know, a bunch of college students and, and older people, whatever, just flock into this tent and then they they act horrified at these other people that are, you know, they just happen to be born with, you know, some things that are different, you know. And I, I couldn't tell. Just educate me, Alex. So in 74, is this playing, uh, is this meant to play that way to the audience? Like I reacted to where, you know, it's showing you the in quotation marks, like the freaks, but you're really supposed to be kind of appalled by the reactions of the audience, or is it playing as as if you were you're supposed to react like the audience? You're just they're just showing you these these weirdos, and you're you know just to freak you out. Is that how is it supposed to be playing in '74? I don't know because it's accompanied with that discussion uh, that Brian and uh, Tony have. Of Tony thinks that Nolter is a uh, a quack he's mad whereas brian thinks he's a brilliant man and capable of like you know some potentially great things well brian uh, has the benefit of actually having been to the lab so he's seen yes. the giant like super mario <laughs> with plans. he's been he's been told and shown yes know. he saw a little rabbit meet his demise i think it is up for the audience of how they want to interpret it what they want to take away from it Oh, it's a Rorschach I mean, test. I, <laughs> again, it upsets me. You've never seen Freaks, but that's part of it in the end. It is it is a horror movie, but part of the movie is like, uh, what's wrong? You know, the exploitation of these people, or is this how they make a living and the people that laugh at them are the real, like, you know, morbid ones, that type of thing. Um, did you catch uh, one of our patrons was in the, the audience at this Freak show? <laughs> What? 
I mean, I knew he was old. I didn't realize Brandon Curtis was that old because the one character <laughs> has a pu- has a pun for every single performer that comes out. Yes, and it cuts. But it's uh, I, I joke. It's the character it's, Tony, it's Tony, but but every character that comes out, he has a pun that I could just hear Curtis's laugh, like you know, reverberating from the back of the theater. If we all went and saw this together, it's funny the way that they set up Tony because he's. He's that guy, right? He's he's also uh, mouthing off during during the class when, when Loomis is teaching. He's always he always has like smart ass comment and and then uh, he seems to be uh, not comedic relief. It's that that type of character that's supposed to be kind of annoying. But then towards the end of the movie, as the story progresses, he he's kind of heroic and, and then ends up being a tragic figure, which I was not expecting from this type of movie. Uh, it just shows how how unfamiliar I am with uh, <laughs> with horror movie tropes in '74. He's a human being. <laughs> so the new attraction is the lizard girl. And as I think they literally, it's like a two bits of gander thing, like half pound, you can come look at it. And um, they go to do so. But Lynch immediately recognizes them as the, the friends of Bridget. And on top of that, they recognize that Burns is wearing Bridget's medallion. So he kind of gives them <laughs> the... He looks over his shoulder, over their shoulders, and sees Lynch. And Lynch does the kind of like closes his eyes and shakes his head side to side, like "Don't do it." Or no, he doesn't close his eyes. He like stares at him like he's gonna murder him. He has his <laughs> eyes like wide open. So they they're turned away. They leave that night, and Tony's very dismissive of the whole thing, but he can't shake the idea that there could potentially be this half female, half lizard creature out there, and goes. Oh, you to- think that that's why he goes back? I thought that he went back because he couldn't shake off the idea that that medallion was Bridget's medallion. See, that's why well, I he, thought that he was more heroic than I originally expected. Because it's like, oh, he actually cares for his friend so much that he's going to sneak back into this creepy carnival in the middle of the night. But the first place he goes is to the lizard shack. I don't know. See, the, the movie, I guess it's to its benefit. It's creating this stimulating conversation. <laughs> because Well, I, the, I was surprised. the main thing I mean, is... When it happened, I was like, man, this guy is smarter than I thought because he he's connected the dots, right? There's a there's a mysterious lizard woman. My friend is missing, and her medallion it was at basically <laughs> was being worn by a guy that was guarding the entrance to the lizard woman's lair. Maybe the lizard woman is my friend. Let's see. But but they're all concerned, you know. They say, I can't shake the feeling of that medallion. So they all should have gone back together like Scooby Doo style. But I think this dude you know, it was just so like, I got to see this lizard. Like, I got to see what's going on over here. <laughs> and if I figure out what happened to Bridget, that's cool, too. Well, I mean, we know that Brian had uh, bigger things to do. That's why he didn't go. He's a foreign student, a foreign exchange student that's getting laid in England. So that's really where all his free time is, is going. Yeah. What, what more do you need? Anyway, doesn't work out well for Tony because he's eventually he sees the lizard via uh, he uses his lighter to kind of light the room and it's a pretty terrifying sight. And it's yeah, not a lizard it, though, it looks more like a ape sapien or like a slee stack. He's caught, apprehended, beaten down. He sees a lizard woman though, so at least that curiosity, the that itch was scratched. Uh, the performers, uh, the circus performers, have a party, so this literally is lifted from freaks culminating one of them says you're one of us well there you go you at least know that well i've seen the clip even out of context i mean even without the context of the rest of the movie it's kind of unsettling 
this culminates. It's one of the performers' birthdays, and Lynch. They ask him to have a drink with them. It's like you're one of us, and then he freaks out and, uh, no pun intended, breaks everything and says, "I'm, I am not one of you." And drinks uh, a lot. He does. Poor guy. He ends up going to a lady of the night, a prostitute, in probably the most accessible and humanizing scene in the whole movie. You learn some more about him in that he just literally just wants to be loved. Uh, it doesn't erase the horrendous things that he's doing, but he goes and he goes and pays this woman just to say, I love you. Kind of a funny scene in a really dry, you know, British type of way, too, because she sees him and uh, she says something like handsome one, aren't you? She says, oh, don't worry, I've dealt with my fair share in this uh, in this job. I think uh, MVP, this lady. I, I didn't even catch her. He, she doesn't get a name. She's just a person uh, well, that hooks up with Lynch. She's billed as prostitute. Uh, a, a simpler time was 1974. Uh, Lisa Collings was the actress's name. Yeah, she barely and, raises an eyebrow when when he takes his his hat off and reveals himself. She's like, "Oh, okay, so it's gonna be that kind of night." Twisted world of prostitution. It costs more for her to say "I love you" than just you know <laughs> doing the deed. I wasn't kidding, Julio. I do think that's one of the most, if not the most, humanizing scene in the movie. Would you agree or disagree? No, I agree. It, it definitely it makes him a tragic character, and he was one of the bad guys. I mean, he still is, because it's not like this suddenly changes what he's doing. <laughs> After this sequence, he goes back to kidnapping people to uh, to and take them to Loomis, uh, to Loomis's lab. But I guess when this happened, Alex, were you expecting uh, a climax where Lynch turned on Loomis? Like they're humanizing him so that we can kind of that serves as a bridge to him developing a conscience and then turning against Loomis because he thinks that he's gone too far or where you're like no this is just a a one-off but then he's still gonna be the bad guy until the end of the movie honestly in my mind what I was kind of forecasting was a thing where Lynch sacrifices himself to take down Nolter with him uh, which obviously didn't turn to be the case but it uh, at least kept you guessing but then in the end he turns out just to be the be a bad guy. There's two bad guys in this. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that they just didn't give him enough time to uh, <laughs> to really turn. Just tell me. Just say. Oh, come on, love. I haven't got all night. What? Just say, I love you. So the lizard woman dies. It's another experiment gone awry. You know, she was alive, fortunately, long enough for them to squeeze a few pennies off of people. But uh, Burns says, you know, she just started breathing funny and then died. Uh, meanwhile, Tony is the latest to be operated on, experimented on, I should say. But the difference is he kind of came to during it and got away. As we see the operating room, that's uh, it's completely torn apart there's a trail of blood and also uh loomis gets on the horn with lynch and says you know i I think i've i've done it but he got away and loomis you know is disheveled and his blood pressure and you know pulse never rises at all no matter what's (laughs) happening though and that's what makes his character so scary i read that was his thing because i guess the professor nolzer character is supposed to be very you know it's alive and donald pleasance (laughs) was just like uh no i'm gonna play this pretty much the way i play everything else it's gonna be very calm and collected (laughs) and it's gonna make it that much more memorable which it does yeah, you're right because he's uh, when he's making that phone call and telling Lynch, he is uh, he has blood on his face. <laughs> he's just like, uh, get me a new one. <laughs> the one I had is uh, is gone. How would you describe what Tony turns into? 
Because he he's different. He's not Ape Sapiens. I thought he looked a little like uh, like Swamp Thing, but I don't know if you're familiar with Swamp Thing. Oh yeah, dude, I played with Swamp Thing toys when I was a little kid. I, I wrote he I dubbed him Plant Man in my notes, <laughs> but he's basically the human hybrid of that plant that Loomis feeds the rabbit to at the beginning of the movie because uh, he has the chest cavity that opens. It's not even the chest; it's like from his neck down to his crotch area is like a Venus flytrap. When we see him at first is. He's kind of in mid-transition uh, when he goes to see, what's his girlfriend's name? Lauren, because it knocks her into shock when she sees him for the first time. But then we see a, a transient, a hobo, what whatever vernacular you want to use, gets drunk and passes out like on a bridge. And then he just kind of comes up and he eats this dude. It's pretty fucking metal. <laughs> but it's he's basically a human that's half Venus flytrap, half human. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and, and the movie brings it up uh, at some point because uh, Loomis's whole thing was that this was going to be progress. Like, imagine if you if you will uh, the combination of animal and plant, and so you have this organism that moves around like an animal, like a man, but it uh, absorbs energy from from the sun. So imagine we don't have to eat anymore. But then, of course, the creatures that he's creating need to feed, and they feed on people. <laughs> So I think that when he claims that he's done it, uh, he's, I think he's a little too, uh, he's getting ahead of himself. I think there's one big detail that he hasn't quite figured out yet. What purpose does this serve? <laughs> yes, you did it. But why? <laughs> What's uh Is it Morgan Freeman in The Dark Knight that says, but at what cost? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because Batman wiretaps the entire city. That's Morgan Freeman shames him with that. Lauren's in shock. He goes to see Hetty and covers himself with a blanket and just explains in broken speech because the plant's almost completely taken over him. It basically comes down to must get Nolter, and then he, <laughs> he runs out. Dude, I was expecting an uh, insect politics kind of scene. I was I was a little bummed that he didn't get a big speech, but uh, he did what he had to do. I guess instead of the instant politics speech, we got uh, a scene where Lauren is taking a bath <laughs> before he breaks into her apartment. It was again the as, casual as was the style at the time. Yeah, it's like a little, let's see a little more skin before before the next creepy scene. There was a point in time where you couldn't watch any scene of pornography in the history of pornography. At a moment's notice on your phone, and a part of the appeal was if you went to see a horror movie, you were likely going to see some boobs, and that is what made a lot of horror movies a lot of money. Not saying it's wrong, not saying it's right, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying it's, it's just how it was. It's how it was. <laughs> uh, we could, as humans, we could have done a whole lot of worse things than we did, such as freak shows and sideshow attractions at the circus. Creating and creating half plant (laughs) (laughs) and never getting Donald Pleasance a fucking Oscar. That's a that's a big problem we had too. Maybe not for this movie. Let's not ask for that. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just in general, that man's body of work, and I mean, we've discussed he's legitimately riveting in some things, uh, Wake and Fright specifically. But back to the matter at hand, the way this scene is ended, and that. Tony flees is that Lynch shows up at Hetty's apartment. He snatches her, takes her in as the the new crash test dummy to see what kind of plant being Loomis can make. 
Uh, Brian shows up at her apartment, sees the note that says, you know, this is all Nolter's fault. Um, goes to the mansion, the 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 laboratory, to shut it all down. When he gets there, he's confronted by Lynch, and they get into a bit of a scuffle. And um, again, uh, this movie took some things from Freaks and the band of circus performers. You know, Freaks as they're called in this context show up all with spectacular aim when it comes to throwing knives as they're continuously, you know, like darts, just bullseye, bullseye, bullseye on Lynch here. And he's backpedaling further and further. It's like a hell in a cell match in wrestling when they're getting close to the edge and you're like, Oh, someone's going to fall off because at, uh, professor Nolter's compound, there's a big wall of attack dogs. So if he falls into them, you know, it's, he's a done data. Uh, and now Brian it- misses all this because <laughs> he got knocked out in the first two minutes of this scene. Oh yeah, he could not fight for shit. Lynch like pushed him and then took a rock and hit him in the head with it. Right? Yeah, he was yeah because he was unconscious because he was about to kill him. And then um, I think it was Popeye threw his knife at him because he had teased earlier potentially stabbing Lynch. But no, I think uh, is- Burns do his, does it first because that's the oh, big thing. Burns yes. you know turns on him and finally yeah. Yeah, but they're like, are you crazy? You're going to create an international incident. That man is American. <laughs> He's right about to fall into the, the dogs, and he makes his last you know, ditch effort of cowardice where he says, you see, I'm one of you. And they say, fuck that. And he <laughs> falls and is You ruined mauled. our party. <laughs> yeah. I wish it had been the birthday girl that did like the final, like the death blow. But, you know, can't be a completely perfect movie. But he falls. He's eaten. He's mauled, attacked by dogs. And we get one shot of them, you know, fucking steak, like raw meat, just ripping it off. <laughs> Inside, Nolter's performing what would become his last experiment on Hetty. And Plant Man saves the day because for some reason, Loomis has a fucking sunroof in his laboratory. <laughs> and this guy... You know, Superfly splashes through the the glass and lands on Loomis and picks him up and then ingests him into his Venus flytrap. And then we get the grotesque imagery of Loomis's, you know, depleted and drained corpse falling out of this dude's body. It's pretty fucking gnarly. And it's practical, Julio. So it's more memorable than, you know. So so is it... uh, Ant-Man. Is it Donald Pleasance just covered in slime and... You know, Brother, whatever that thing prosthetics. Was clearly a dummy. And God. you know what? I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's where we differ. I you know what? Commit. You have Donald Pleasance there. Just just do it up. Paint him green. <laughs> that's it. Do it both ways. Let and then audience test it to see who what they like better. Uh, also, the sunroof actually makes sense, Alex, because uh, there's a bunch of plants in there, so they need sunlight. Touche. I'm so used to like, um, you the know, movie not making sense. <laughs> well, labs and shit being like underground or like you know really heavily guarded fortresses. That in my mind it was just you know, <laughs> Loomis just in case the stars were out one night and he was working the lab. But what you said <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, by this point, The Great Escape, You Only Live Twice, uh, Wake and Fright, as we mentioned, Eye of the Devil had happened. So I just imagine Jack Cardiff was like, 
All right, Donald. So uh, we're going to paint your face green and then dump this corn syrup on you. Uh, the cleanup should take about four hours, but, you know, it's just for this one shot. And <laughs> Loomis is like, I'm not going to be doing that. And then he's like walked into his trailer and shut the door behind him. <laughs> Nolter has been stopped. Brian wakes up, comes in, frees Hetty, takes her to safety. Uh, does Tony, do we see the fate of Tony or does he just wander off and become one with nature? No, no, no. He burns. He He's engulfed in flames because... Uh, the lab goes up in flames, and then there's a shot of him kind of like keeling over, and he's yeah, on fire. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, Nolter has been stopped. Sadly, Tony sacrifices himself in the process because the lab is engulfed in flames, and he perishes in said fire. Brian awakes, is able to save Hetty, takes her back to his car, and, you know, everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay, and they have one last embrace. And then we are treated to what appears to be like the, the before Christ era CGI here of... <laughs> Hetty's arm we see it was too little too late as she was already you know her genes were mutated and she's becoming a plant because her arm starts to turn into a plant and honestly I joke but the CG in this is better than the CG in X-Men Origins Wolverine so (laughs) there's a win for Cardiff and the crew (laughs) well uh, uh, I mean they didn't leak the unfinished version of the mutations so what is the scenario where the mutations had to be rushed out because a print leaked (laughs) Uh, so she turns into poison ivy at the end right that's the implication because she her arm turns green but it doesn't look like she's like her appearance is not deformed and uh he's even making out to brian that's how the movie closes they're they're in a full makeout session even though their friends are dead (laughs) And their and their teacher turned out to be a monster, but he's like, "I love you, I love you too." And they make out, and then her arm turns green. Directed by Jack Cardiff, loved the font on the credits too, so unique that slime green and whatnot. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we needed a Batman movie. Maybe this was the first stage. Uh, they were looking to a sequel to the Adam West sixty six one, so they're like, "All right, let's tease it here and see see how the audiences react." I just like that uh, My Way started playing when the credits started rolling. <laughs> the post credit scene with Adam West and Burt Ward running in was, was cut. <laughs> well, that was the mutations, Alex. I, I can safely say that it's unlike... Nah, I was going to say unlike any movie that we've done before. But no, like you, like you said, it has a little bit of, uh, of the fly. So I can say at least that, that part is there. But uh, still... Yeah, and we haven't dipped our toes into the obscure wild horror of 1970s. We've done like the hallmarks, like Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but shit like this, uh, things like the baby crazy random shit of the 70s, we haven't dived into. So I'm glad we were able to do so. And at the uh, request of a patron, makes it all the more special. Yeah, because now we can blame him. <laughs> People don't like this episode. <laughs> Listen, that was Dale's pick. Uh, but let's find out if we actually liked it and also what Dale thinks about the movie. Uh, let's go to Real Talk. Let's do. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Kathy. Mr. Lynch! Aren't you going to have a drink with us to help celebrate Kathy's birthday? 
You expect me to sit down with a bunch of freaks? <laughs>